Okay, everyone, today we have here with us uh, someone I really admire as a scientist, Dr. Eric Smith. Uh, Dr. Eric, Eric Smith received the Bachelor of Science in Physics and Mathematics from the California Institute of Technology in 1987 and a PhD in Physics from the University of Texas at Austin in 1993. He is also uh, an external professor at the Santa Fe Institute, research professor at George Mason University, and principal investigator at the Earth's Earth Life Science Institute, Tokyo Institute of Technology. He is a physicist specializing in the origin of life, non-equilibrium systems, economics, and the evolution of human languages. So, I decided to invite Dr. Smith today because I would really like to go through what he uh, exposed in the recent book, the book from 2016, The Origin and Nature of Life on Earth. And to start off with, uh, I think it's important to contextualize uh, the, the thing here, that is, we have uh, uh, when when it comes to theories or hypotheses about the origin of life, we have on the one hand uh, the RNA first hypothesis, and on the other hand we have the metabolism first hypothesis. But uh, these these last hypothesis is also been developing over time. And you have a particular version of it in your book. Could you please explain to people what are the main differences between what we tend to group in the RNA first hypothesis and the metabolism first hypothesis? Yeah. I, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to talk to you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I think we have to go back a little bit in history because neither of these is really a hypothesis. One has to understand that the problem is so complicated and the parts of it that people understand are so small that each of these is only a fragment of an idea. And so starting as long ago as the late 1920s or 1930s, uh, chemists and biologists working both in England and also or in India at the time, and also in Russia, first put forward the idea that chemistry on early planets was not just a complete mess, it had structure. And that some of that structure would be related to the structure in biochemistry. And so in those days, RNA was not even known about, so there were no other hypotheses. There was just the idea that the origin of life should be an approachable science problem. Now the ability to turn it into a set of concrete questions didn't go much further for about the next uh, 25 years. But then, oh, when was it? 1953, in the work of Stanley Miller with Harold Urey, it was discovered that if you put electric sparks through mixtures of reducing gases, methane, ammonia, and then ordinary background oxygenated species like water, mm -hmm you would not only get organic molecules, but you would get organic molecules that many of which were in common with the molecules of biochemistry. So this was the first way of starting to talk about particular structure. Uh, 
Now, it's important to realize that in that same year, it was not actually known what DNA was, and it was only discovered by Watson and Crick that DNA was the material of heredity. So it was the molecular basis for memory in cells, and it was the way that selection in Darwin's sense could exercise control over biochemistry and over phenotypes. So even in the 1950s, there was the beginning of a hypothesis that early planets had chemical order, but there was no idea of metabolism first or RNA first, because RNA was still not understood. You have to wait 20 more years before the discovery, and there were many discoveries made along the way, that RNA exists, that it's related to DNA, but it has different functions in cells. But it was in the late 1970s and very early 1980s that it was discovered by Tom Cech and Sidney Altman that RNA was not only capable of base pairing the same way that DNA is and so could carry memory, but it was also capable of catalyzing chemical reactions. So all the way up until the 1970s, there was no actual theory of the origin of life at all. There was just a hope that planets had chemical structure and that we could approach this as a discipline scientific question. But right after the publications by Czech and Altman showing that RNA could be catalytic, one of the great difficulties in origin of life seemed to have a partial solution. Because if you look at cells, and enough biochemistry was understood by the 1970s and 80s that people knew quite a lot about how cells work, you realize that all of the machines that synthesize proteins depend on the presence of DNA and RNA, and yet all of the systems that replicate DNA or that make RNA are dependent on proteins. So you have a classic chicken and egg problem. You can't seem to get either class of molecules without having the other class first, and no one had a good solution to that before the discovery of RNA catalysis. So RNA catalysis looked like it broke the chicken and egg problem, and that part of the discovery looks like it still is probably correct. It's a very good idea. It raises many new questions, but it doesn't create any bigger problems than the problems we had before. Essentially, the idea of an RNA world, which is not the same as RNA first, was coined by Walter Gilbert sometime soon after the discoveries by Czech and Altman. I don't remember the exact year. He proposed that whereas today we have DNA that's the main memory molecule of cells, proteins are the main catalysts and structural elements, and then RNA is the whole informational machinery of the cell that holds the DNA and the proteins together, there should have been some much earlier stage of life when the catalytic functions and the main memory, as well as the machinery, were all dependent mostly on RNA, and that that provided a background of structure that proteins could then accrete around. So I think most people who study early life think that some version of this hypothesis is very likely to be correct, that some early stage in living systems was one before DNA, and in which many catalytic functions were performed mostly by RNA, but maybe not entirely. So that is the idea of an RNA world stage of life. Now, in the original version, it was not supposed that the RNA world stage of life was the very first element of life, or that there was a unique departure from a non-living Earth to an Earth with life. That's a sort of stronger interpretation of early RNA, and this is what came to be understood as RNA first in a kind of colloquial jargon. 
And that was the idea that there should be some crisp starting point between a pre-life stage of Earth and then the stage when you can say that there's life, and that that starting point was marked by the first RNA that could catalyze its own replication. So that's a very strong, specific hypothesis, and people have been working for the last 40 years to see if they can provide chemical detail, many of them hoping to support it, others just wanting to understand whether it's a sensible question. Now, it was around the end of the 70s that it was first understood that the biochemistry and the deep evolutionary history of life is very different than we imagined it to be from the 30s to the 50s, mm -hmm. and that there's a lot more similarity between biochemistry and geochemistry than people had imagined. And so around this time, and I, I guess it was James Corliss and John Barros and Sarah Hoffman and several others, uh, eventually the idea was strongly advocated by people like Mike Russell and William Martin and Bob Shapiro, a lot of people. They proposed that there was enough similarity between geological chemistry and biochemistry that, in fact, there should be a continuity between geochemistry and biochemistry that did not depend on large, complex molecular catalysts like RNA or proteins, and that that metabolic order made possible the synthesis of the large macromolecules. And that was what came to be known as the metabolism first hypothesis. So there was a kind of, excuse me, a kind of uncomfortable period of 25 or 30 years when these two groups would argue heavily with each other as if either of them had a very good answer and they disagreed, when in fact most of what's not understood is not understood by anyone and neither of the conjectures is strong enough that there's really a solid ground for disagreement. So the state of the world today is that I think we've managed to put a lot of that fighting behind us and ask better science questions, and that's kind of the generation that I came into. Mm -hmm. Right. So this work that you described uh, focus on the continuity between uh, geochemistry and biochemistry. Uh, and I would like to cover all the steps. What do we need to know in terms of geological processes that occur on Earth to understand the scientific work? We need to, we need to know a lot, more than we know. Um, we don't... I'll give you a rough idea where the questions lie. We know that organic chemistry happens in space because there's very high energy radiation in space and it's also very cold and that combination is good for building complex molecules. We know that organic chemistry happens high in planetary atmospheres. The energies are not as high and it's not as cold, so the kinds of chemistry you do are a little bit different, but they still happen. Both of those sources of organic molecules were part of the material that was deposited on the early surface of the Earth. And then, as you had eruptions and resurfacing of the rock on the surface and interactions with the ocean, you also have chemistry that happens at the rock-water interface and in the subsurface, where there's water beneath the surface. And that is warmer. That's a different kind from either the atmosphere or space. And there is some evidence, though not as detailed as we want, that that also does organic chemistry. And there are good energetic reasons to think that it should do organic chemistry. So the most basic question that no one can answer with certainty 
is which of these forms of chemistry was even essential to the emergence of the biosphere. You can find scientists who put a very heavy emphasis on the chemistry of space because it's an easy way to get to molecules that are similar to parts of DNA and RNA. Mm -hmm. There are other people who put much more emphasis on the chemistry at the bottom of the ocean and in the subsurface and due to rock-water interactions because it's very steady and because in many of its details it's very closely aligned with the energetics of living systems. But uh, it's an amazing thing that after so much work, we don't have the ability to rule out the importance of any of these compounds. So all of the arguments everyone makes are circumstantial. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and you, you refer to, at least a little bit, uh, hydrothermal vents. Uh, these are places that are really crucial to understand where uh, ge uh, geochemistry can have a continuity with biochemistry because these are the places where certain geological processes occur and we have certain kinds of rocks, let's say, that because they are porous and so on, allow for uh, a certain kind of chemistry and certain kinds of uh, life forms to develop, right? Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, I don't know if this is the best place to say it, but let's mention the following thing and make sure we come back to it. It's very important to understand that all chemistry that involves any kind of change of bonds is fundamentally electrical. Other things may be moved around. Different elements may, may be involved in some reactions and not others, but every chemical reaction that changes a bond involves electricity. And so, in that sense, my friend and colleague Paul Falkowski says, you must understand that life is an electrical phenomenon. So the reason to think about hydrothermal systems is that planets are also electrical. And the reason for this is interesting. The lightest abundant element formed in the early universe is hydrogen, and the heaviest abundant element formed in the late stages of massive stars is iron. Both of these, as it turns out, give electrons away in most reactions that they participate in. The abundant elements in the middle, oxygen, nitrogen, carbon, silicon, sulfur, tend to pull electrons to them. And so we have an asymmetry in the chemistry of the universe that goes into the formation of planets. Now, when planets form, if they're close to the, a star like the Sun, most of the bulk of the planet is actually iron-rich rock. And early on, it may even have a large hydrogen atmosphere. So what this says is that all the initial material of the planet has much of the electron donating capacity of the lightest element, hydrogen, and the heaviest abundant element, iron. But early on in a planet's history, a hydrogen atmosphere gets blasted away by solar radiation and solar wind, and the water that's on the surface, in the case of a planet like ours, is also broken up by ultraviolet radiation, and because the hydrogen is light, it escapes preferentially, and what it leaves behind are the electron accepting elements like oxygen and sulfur and nitrogen. So now you have an interior of the Earth which is very ready to donate electrons, and you have an atmosphere and ocean layer that's enriched in elements like oxygen and sulfur that can accept electrons. So anytime those two can be brought into contact, the planet becomes a giant battery. 
where there's a constant delivery of electrons off of iron in the interior onto oxygen, and then eventually into the ocean and atmosphere material, where the water that's formed as a consequence of part of this can then be broken, the hydrogen can be lost carrying the electron donating capacity away, and the cycle starts all over. So the reason hydrothermal vents are interesting is that in a planet like ours, which has plate tectonics, a very organized circulation of the mantle and the crust, most of the formation of new crust that happens on a continuing basis actually happens at spreading centers at the bottoms of oceans. And so this is, unlike the surface of Venus or perhaps the early Earth, where you would have occasional eruptions and rapid resurfacing and then quiet for a long time, on our planet where you have tectonic spreading, you have a continuous production of new crust year in and year out along very long lines like the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, which runs for thousands of kilometers. And so this is where you concentrate the electron flow from the interior to the surface of the Earth. So if you are looking for the kinds of energy that power biochemistry now, the place where the planet is richest in those is at these organized centers where new crust is made. Mm -hmm. Right. I think there were other things that you wanted to cover, but let me hand it back to you. Yes. Uh, and so, um, what are the characteristics, the, the types of phenomena that occur in the hydrothermal vents that can, uh, can give us certain clues to what might have been the, the chemistry that was at the origin of biochemistry? Yes. So that question turns out to have two parts. One of them is geological and one of them is biological. Mm -hmm. I mentioned that in the late 70s and early 80s, at the same time as catalysis by RNA was being discovered, there were other things being discovered about changes in biology. So in the late 60s, Carl Rose discovered that you could create evolutionary histories of microbes using molecular signatures that were vastly more informative than anything that could be done by looking at the shapes of organisms. And with that, he discovered that there were whole branches in the tree of life that people had not even realized were distinct. Around the same time, the late 1970s and uh, early 1980s, deep ocean expeditions first became possible. There was some work by a French group. There was also work by the group at Woods Hole. And initially, they were just trying to uncover geological anomalies because they knew that the newly formed crust was not as hot as it should be, given their models of heat transport. So something had to be carrying the heat away. They guessed that the thing that was carrying the heat away might be interaction and mixing with water in the subsurface. So they expected to find some venting like in the old style coffee makers of the 1950s and 60s. But they did not expect to find any life because in that era, it was assumed that all life depended on photosynthetic energy on the surface of the earth and was related to oxygen. Now, there should have been some clues to be careful because in 1966, the first new carbon fixation cycle that was not the one used by plants was discovered on a, in a surface organism, but it was discovered to be related to the citric acid cycle. And we'll come back to that later, I know. Mm -hmm. But yes. even then, it became apparent that there were some organisms that didn't rely on energy from the sun directly and maybe not indirectly 
What they really needed was just an electron donor like hydrogen, molecular hydrogen, or sometimes some other sources, reduced metals. So the important discovery in geology was when the Woods Hole group went down to the Galapagos Rift, instead of discovering a dead moonless surface like they expected, they found these surfaces that were full of life. And it was life that did not depend on sunlight for its energy. It was getting energy from the vents themselves. So then the question is, the second part of your question, what kinds of energy do vents provide? The two important things that they provide are molecular hydrogen and reduced metals. And they have slightly different sources. So I told you that in the deep earth, much of the material is iron bound up in silicate rocks. In the deep, deep earth, what you have is iron metal, which has all of its electrons. That's a state known as iron zero. But in most of the mantle, the iron that's in the rocks has lost two electrons, so it's known as iron two, or iron two plus. Iron is an element that can also give another electron to, give, to have given away three, and that's what we see in the red iron that makes up rust. When the mantle is converted into crust on the surface, the iron gives up that extra electron and it goes from being iron two to being iron three, which is why the, the iron on the surface of the earth is red. The thing that it gives it up to is water. So the oxygen goes into the mineral and it changes the type of the mineral and the hydrogen atoms that were on the water remain. And so instead of iron being the donator of electrons, molecular hydrogen escapes and it becomes the donor for electrons. When that hydrogen is dissolved in seawater at the vent, bacteria can use that as an energy source. If it escapes to the surface, it can go off into space, transporting reducing power out of the earth, as we discussed. So all of these deep primary ecosystems are driven by bacteria that are either using iron, uh, either using hydrogen, or sometimes using uh, reduced metals that are dissolved out of the rock by acidic processes as electron donors. And then for electron acceptors, they use molecules like sulfate or nitrate. Now those molecules do know about the presence of oxygen on the surface of the earth. They would not have been as abundant in the very early earth as they are today. But the basic chemical processes that are used are things that we can trace using Carl Woese's methods back to the very oldest branches in the tree of life. So if we're looking for good models of what the earliest biochemistry would look like, they look like they should have been similar to the bacteria and the archaea that live in vents and that are powered by They do not look similar to the things that harvest light energy on the surface. Mm -hmm. Right. So at the very basis of the interaction between geochemistry and the early biochemistry, we start off with redox reactions, right? E electron, yes. electron transfers. Uh, yes. And these electron transfers they, uh, create a sort of battery that go along the earth. And, yes. and interact also with the local geology, the local rocks, for example, the ones that we have in hydrothermal vents, if, if I understood it correctly. And, and this is at the very basis of biochemistry uh, and uh, still following from geochemistry, uh, we can also talk about 
what is called uh, the chemical paths of least resistance. Uh, and uh, and these, these are kind of uh, ined inevitable chemical paths that are followed because of the conditions that we verify uh, at these places like hydrothermal vents and so on, right? Let me not make such a strong statement because no one can claim that much knowledge at this time. Mm -hmm. These are hypotheses. Um, so we don't even know with certainty that the earliest life looked similar to vent life. Mm -hmm. What we can say okay. is that it's a better reconstruction than we can do using photosynthetic organisms as models. Mm -hmm. um, we can say that we know that geological processes will support ecosystems that are simpler and organisms that are simpler without the use of light. So even though we don't know that that was what did happen, we know that it's possible. Mm -hmm. Now, with that said, if you ask what, the, what is the purpose of a chemical path of least resistance, mm -hmm. I would say it's an idea to organize our thinking. So if you look back a long way to the late 1920s and early 1930s, and then again in the 1950s, about the way people looked at chemistry in relation to life, they always looked at chemical materials, and they were saying, if you have an amino acid, maybe you can build a protein. If you have an oily molecule, maybe you can build a membrane. But uh, I forget who said it. I, um, someone said, you can turn chicken into chicken soup, but you can't turn chicken soup back into a chicken. <laughs> and that's the important problem that needs to be understood about life. So the thing that was missing in the scientific knowledge from the 30s to the 50s was a way to talk about processes. So people focused on materials because it was the only thing they could say concretely with scientific care. But now we need to talk about processes because we know that you can get chicken soup. What we don't know is why you can't turn it back into a chicken. And so you can then say, what's the difference between chemistry in the atmosphere or in space versus chemistry in the deep subsurface? And that is chemistry in space or chemistry in the atmosphere is very high energy. And that energy is needed because it produces activation. It produces chemical reactions. What it doesn't do is produce much selectivity. Now, early on, people were not worried about selectivity because they figured, okay, in a Darwinian world, somehow later things will be selected. As a physicist, I worry a lot about selectivity because selectivity is very, very, very hard. Uh, the space of possible chemistries is enormous. Hundreds of millions or billions of molecules of complexity comparable to even the simple molecules of life, and actual life uses only a few hundred as its basic building blocks. So to go from hundreds of millions or billions down to a huge problem, to a small number, a few hundred, is a very hard problem. And that was not given enough care in the early years. Mm -hmm. Right. So... If we then say, how does the subsurface do better? 
The thing that characterizes the hydrothermal vent environment is that it's actually low energy. It doesn't activate a lot of chemistry. It does some mineral chemistry, and it can do the very important thing of releasing hydrogen or a few other electron-donating species like hydrogen sulfide. The problem in the subsurface is that it doesn't seem to activate enough to build many of the molecules of life as we know it yet. So the problem for the subsurface is, if there is going to be any chemistry, it must be given its organization by catalysis. Now the great thing about catalysis is that it is a selective process, so our problem of selectivity may be addressed in that way. We're not starting with hundreds of millions or billions of compounds and trying to get down to a few hundred. Instead, we're starting with almost none and trying to get up to a few hundred. But for some of us, that seems like a more tractable problem. So the question, though, becomes, even given everything we don't know, some things we think must be sure to be correct. Early planetary chemistry had some order. It was not completely random. At some much later stage, there were complex molecules, RNA, proteins, DNA. There were cells. There was bioenergetics. And those systems are capable of adaptation and selection. So, was early geochemistry continuous? Did it form a foundation that has persisted into modern life even after the complex catalysts came into existence? Or were the complex catalysts so powerful that they erased any memory of what geochemistry had been and they replaced it with completely different molecules and pathways? That is the standing dispute that is the, the modern version of metabolism first versus RNA as the most important thing. And the idea of a path of least resistance is our attempt, those of us who work in this area, to talk about where continuity would come from. So you can say some things in chemistry in absolute terms are easier to do than other things. That means that they're more likely to occur spontaneously on an early planet, they're easier to discover a biological catalyst to do, and also, even if you don't want them to happen, they may happen by themselves, which means if they're not part of your biochemistry, they're a source of trouble for you. So, if we look for an organization of chemistry around a path of least resistance, like water flowing downhill that cuts a track, and then the water all flows in the track. That gives us a way to try to study this very large landscape of chemistry and have a better chance of finding the reactions that would occur on early planets and that would then set a foundation for the later Darwinian world of biochemistry. So it's a kind of a scientific program for how to explore chemistry systematically and how to ask better questions than we could ask before. Mm -hmm. Right. So now could you please talk a little bit about the importance of the Krebs cycle and why we can talk about it as a self-focusing vortex? Yes. So this is incredibly important for basic education. And I'm very happy that you do a public program for science because almost all of us who were taught chemistry in secondary school learned about the citric acid cycle or the Krebs cycle. And we were taught that it was a cycle that we use to digest sugars and fats and to produce energy. And that's true. That's how we use it. But, <coughs> excuse me, 
There are much more important things to say about the Krebs cycle, and we should also be teaching those. They should be part of everyone's science education. All of life, all of the organisms that have ever been discovered of every kind in the world make all of their biological molecules starting from only about 125 to 150 very small units. And then they just assemble those units in groups. All of those 125 or 150 small molecules have pathways that begin in one of only four or five compounds in the Krebs cycle. So the reason that the Krebs cycle is overwhelmingly important <clears throat> is that it is the starting point to make every molecule in every living thing that we know of in the world. And we have no indication that there was ever any other starting point because we've never discovered an organism that requires a different starting point for its biomass than this one. So <clears throat> the reason we use the Krebs cycle today, I believe, is that it was already present as the source of biochemistry, and when you can use it as a way of respiring or digesting organic molecules, that takes your energy source directly into the heart of biosynthesis. But this was the important discovery that was made in 1966 in the lab of Arnon, that there is a version of the Krebs cycle that runs the opposite way ours does, and that one is not used for breaking down. When we run the Krebs cycle and we, we respire sugars or fatty acids, we exhale carbon dioxide as a waste product. The Krebs cycle, the citric acid cycle run in the opposite direction, takes in carbon dioxide and it builds all of the molecules that then become the starting points for biosynthesis. So it's incredibly logical that all of a sudden there's a very short pathway, only 11 molecules, 11 reactions, that go directly from carbon dioxide, which is the inorganic carbon source, to the starting point for all of biosynthesis. It's incredible that there can be anything so simple at the core of biochemistry. And if we, are, if we knew nothing else about biochemistry, I would say that's the most important single thing that we should know, because from it we can rebuild the other things with time and work. Mm -hmm. Now, about self-focusing in the vortex, the important thing to understand is that everything that involves uncertainty always breaks. Anything we build breaks. Anything that we use wears down. And it's the same with the chemistry of life. We build molecules, <clears throat> they break down. So the only way a living system can persist is by constantly building more of itself faster than it breaks down. In chemistry, what that means is that pathways need to make cycles. They need to close on themselves and they need to make self-amplifying cycles. So if I take a molecule and I make the molecule bigger and bring carbon in from carbon dioxide, at some point I need to break that molecule and both fragments of the breakage need to go back into the chemistry that absorbs new carbon. Because if they don't, then I lose the carbon that I took in. All of the biological cycles do this. The amazing thing about the Krebs cycle is that it does it in a very short loop the reducing version. The Krebs cycle properly refers to the version that we use, which is the, the recent direction. The other one is called the reductive citric acid cycle. The remarkable thing about it is that it does that self-amplification in a very small cycle of only 11 compounds. There are other cycles 
also that fix carbon. Six of them are now known, and all of them ultimately close. <clears throat> but some of them involve very long molecular paths before you get back to closure. And there are others that are also very closely related to the core of metabolism. There are no others that are the core in the same way as the citric acid cycle is, but there are others that are so closely connected to it that they also go back as far as we can see, and they may have been parts of the first biochemistry also. Mm -hmm. And perhaps just for people to understand it a bit better, uh, the Krebs cycle is so important because it is at the basis of the production of all the building blocks of life from fat to amino acid, sugar, nucleic acids, vitamins, right? Perfect. Everything. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So, uh, I guess that to, uh, to understand this a bit better, it is important to us to focus more on the metabolism of organisms and to look at life more in terms of ecosystems than individual organisms of or species right what type what main types of metabolism do we find in the tree of life that we should look to yes here i can say something that's a little bit more complicated than what's in the book but not much mm -hmm. um of course every redox reaction requires an electron donor and also an electron acceptor so like a battery it has two ends Mm -hmm. So we can never talk about a reaction as only donating or only accepting because it involves both. But when we talk about metabolisms, we can talk about whether the source of power comes from molecules that donate electrons to the kinds of molecules that make up life. Hydrogen is one of those. Or whether they come from molecules that pull electrons off relative to life. And that's what oxygen or nitrate or sulfate do. And at the most basic level, we can say that all of the major powerful metabolisms on Earth are either of the kind that get their energy from electron donors, and these are called the reducing or reductive metabolisms, or they get their energy from the electron acceptors. These are called the oxidative or respiratory metabolisms. Now, it's important to realize, just for completeness, that there's a very low energy kind of metabolism that lives kind of in the center. It neither gives nor takes electrons from the environment, and it's called a fermentative metabolism. Mm -hmm. What happens is that in any molecule, sometimes there's enough complexity that the electrons are not quite arranged in the lowest energy state, and by rearranging them within the molecule, you can get a little bit of extra energy from that. The reason it's important is that biochemistry was actually discovered by brewers of beer, trying to understand fermentation. So it has huge historical importance to us, even if it's not, it's a kind of a secondary energy system in the biosphere. Okay, so, and we start with <coughs> talking about metabolism and so on, we start with anoxic species at the basis of the tree of life, right? Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, very good. So, Again, before the 1970s, it was not well understood where oxygen comes from on the surface of the Earth, but it, it was roughly understood that photosynthesizers, oxygenic photosynthesizers, split water into hydrogen and oxygen. They deliver the electrons from the hydrogen to make organic carbon. The oxygen goes into the atmosphere, but some of the organic carbon gets buried, 
and it never comes back to rejoin the oxygen, so oxygen piles up in the atmosphere. <clears throat> now, I don't know how long this has been understood exactly, but I think it's been understood in geology for a long time that there was not this level of oxygen on the very early Earth. What we now know is that for at least the first billion and a half years of Earth, there was extremely low oxygen on the surface or in the oceans. And so the conditions on the Earth were much more neutral or electron donating like they are in the most anoxic deep ocean conditions today. So any kind of life that lived back then could not have used respiratory pathways like those today. And in fact, we know a lot about biochemical evolution. We know that these respiratory pathways were brought into existence after photosynthesizers loaded the atmosphere and the oceans with oxygen. <coughs> but what's also understood from the ability to do evolutionary reconstruction of deep metabolisms is that all of the best models for the very early metabolisms are biochemical pathways that use reductants, hydrogen, hydrogen sulfide, metals as electron donors, and all of them, I think we can safely say, involve enzymes that are poisoned by oxygen. So in fact, the enzymes are sensitive to oxygen in such a way that they cannot live in exposed areas of the earth today. So the only kinds of reconstructions we can do of the deep tree are for organisms that must have lived in an environment with almost no molecular oxygen. Mm -hmm. Okay, and now to make a segue with the oxygen, with the oxygen bit, uh, what was the importance of the rise of oxy oxygen in the atmosphere and so on for life on Earth? And did it also interacted with geochemistry and these also interacted again with biochemistry in some way or another because I'm imagining that oxygen would alter as well the geochemical uh, geological chemistry because it also particip participates in redox systems right yes yes the changes are so enormous that nothing else on the planet after its formation has had as extreme a change as the rise of oxygen has. It's quite amazing. Uh, I'd encourage your listeners to look at the books and the talks by Robert Hazen, H-A-Z-E-N, mm -hmm. because he gives a wonderful introduction to the way oxygen has changed the mineralogy on the earth. There are <clears throat> about 4,500 minerals on earth today. Of these, only about 1,500 could have existed before the rise of oxygen. The remaining 3,000 were brought into existence by the presence of oxygen on the surface. So it's incredible. <clears throat> but the other thing to appreciate is that oxygen would have been a terrible poison to almost all organisms alive at the time. And we can see this in the geological record. Everyone has heard about banded iron formations, where you will have bands of red and black iron that are laid down. They're thin, and they accumulate over enormous intervals of time, tens or hundreds of millions of years. I never understood why that would be the case, that it would they would build up in layers like that. What was alternating? What was alternating was life and death, I think. Uh, there are better experts on this than me, and your listeners should check what I say, but I think this is correct. What happens is <clears throat> photosynthesizers first begin to be successful. They build up oxygen in the waters where they live, 
they change the chemistry, and everyone dies. So when the oxygen is there, it precipitates the iron, you get a rusty red band, then everyone dies and you go back to no oxygen, and the iron goes back into solution in a form that's black. Then, slowly life can recover, it starts to photosynthesize again, it produces a bloom of oxygen, everyone dies. And this problem went on without a solution for huge stretches of time, as organisms very slowly came to be capable of handling oxygen in the environment to the point where you could have a stable ecosystem with that kind of a very difficult molecule. So it's a major change for the biosphere and for mineralogy also. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and now um, I would like to introduce the idea because we already talked a lot about the continuity between geochemistry and biochemistry, but the idea of uh, the biosphere as the fourth geosphere. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that. Yes. Um, there's a wonderful way to say this that my colleague <coughs> Sarah Walker at Arizona State came up with. She was uh, writing a review on our book, and I wish we had come up with it. She says, people for a long time thought about the origin of life as something that happened on a planet. Instead, we should think about the origin of life as something that happens to a planet. So <laughs> That's great. It's really beautiful because it says that everything else we understand about the formation of the planet, <clears throat> the accumulation of the bulk, the separation of the iron core from the silicate mantle, the stabilizing of oceans, the outgassing of an atmosphere, and eventually the stabilization of an atmosphere, we recognize that those create the geological domains of the planet, the solid, the liquid, the gas. The emergence of life equally much created a whole dimension of the planet's existence, and it was a kind of stage in planetary maturation. And the idea, so that, I guess it's an old tradition, Vladimir Vanatsky was the first one to put it into this slightly modern form. The old tradition is to say, <clears throat> you don't try to put every molecule into exactly one part of the Earth, but roughly you can say, that there's a rocky bulk and there is a kind of chemistry in that bulk. <clears throat> and we can think of this as a geosphere. There's a different kind of chemistry that happens in the oceans, in the atmospheres, and we can separate the planet into the major domains of solid, liquid, and gas and the energies and the kinds of chemistry by thinking about the way they're organized into these major geospheres. And then within each geosphere, we can understand the fine structure, the details that happen further. But with life, we always tried to do it differently. We always tried to talk about the unique importance of the cell or the unique importance of DNA or RNA. And that meant that we left out of a lot of the parts of what are well understood in science about ecosystems, about <clears throat> deep evolutionary history. When you recognize that the biosphere is a part of the planetary system and a stage in the planet's maturing, you realize that it's like the bulk <coughs> or the oceans or the atmosphere. It's a whole system and each of these kinds of structures plays a role in the emergence and the stabilization of that system. So there are things that happen at the ecological level that are more universal than you see in any given organism. And you, it's right to say that the ecosystem seems to be the carrier of that part of the planet's memory. And 
uh, the biosphere as a whole <coughs> opens up a domain of chemical reactions that never happened before the biosphere existed. And so all of that chemistry gets explored at a system level, even though only part of it is explored in any given organism. So that's the idea of saying, look at life as a planetary process and look at the biosphere <coughs> as a geosphere and as the thing that defines the nature of life. Everything else is just a structure within that system. Mm -hmm. Okay. And now to take another step in the understanding of the origin of life, uh, how did the integration occurred between these chemical processes that we've been talking about and some sort of genetic material, first RNA and then DNA? That question is almost completely a mystery. Um, almost everything that's very important to know is not known. So <clears throat> the best way you can answer that, I think, is to say that in this huge domain of ignorance, there are little islands here and there where people know certain things, and they know them extremely well, and we have to use those islands as the place to start to build a theory and to explore more. <coughs> we know a lot about how to make amino acids in many different ways probably not as much as we need to know. We know that it's easy to polymerize amino acids by drying and heating. That may not be a good model for the way biology does it, so we may not know what's important there. There is only one demonstration of making anything very close to RNA today, and it doesn't look like a very geological model, so it's not clear that we know much about how RNA was made. We certainly don't know how RNA was concentrated enough to polymerize, and we don't know how it was selected so that it had the right handedness uh, called chirality to form the kinds of structures that are important <clears throat> so all of that is areas where we know there are important questions and we don't have answers if you accept that that work remains in the future then you can get to what people study about RNA today <clears throat> and within that they've made remarkable progress a lot is understood about the kinds of catalysis that RNA can perform and about how you can discover the folds and the sequences that are catalytic for RNA in random reactors. So that's an incredibly successful area of exploration. Um, the most beautiful work, I think, because it's the most exciting and we don't have the answer, involves the ribosome and very early peptide folds because we can now unravel the history of the ribosome with incredible precision. We know the layers in which it accreted. We know something about <clears throat> the process by which structure was added. We know that there are relations between the RNA and the peptide folds in the ribosome, and there are relations between ribosomal peptides and later ribosomal proteins, and the proteins that perform other essential very, very early functions in metabolism. All of that is kind of like going back to the 1930s where we know the material of life, but we don't know the process. The fascinating question is, we have a historical record by which the structure increased in complexity, but <clears throat> in the earliest phases, we don't know what the memory mechanism was. We don't know what the evolutionary process was. 
We don't know what the criteria for selection were. So people will talk about evolution in that stage, but there it's only an empty word. When we talk about evolution in cells, we know very much what we mean. They reproduce, they produce too many, there are differences in fit to the environment and some of them die. But when you go back to that molecular era, it's not even clear that there's anything that should be like an individual, so we don't know what word to use to describe the dynamics. So it's an area which is wonderful because it's rich in data. It's exciting because all of the work is still in the future, but it's promising because <clears throat> it, there's so much information that there has to be a clue about process there. So I think that will be one of the next areas that will be well anchored as a kind of a base for exploration. And then we'll try to push our way into earlier and later stages from there. Mm -hmm. So what you just told us about the ribosome is the work that has been done by some col colleagues of yours in France uh, and uh, that uh, about a new analysis suggesting uh, relations between the rise of macromolecules, particularly RNA and proteins in the ribosome, and the elaboration and fixing of some complex metabolic pathways, right? So there's good writing on this. It's all still very speculative, but it's intriguing. Hyman Hartman has written about possible interactions between early RNA and peptides and metabolism with consequences for the genetic code. A researcher named Yakubovsky has studied the chemistry of the aminoacyl-tRNA synthetases, the enzymes that attach amino acids to activated transfer RNAs. <coughs> and there are intriguing clues that they may be related to the ancient chemistry of sulfur bioenergetics. There's other work that has been done by Daniel Segray and also involving Hyman Hartman on the networks of biochemistry and what happens if you remove phosphate. And they seem to be shining a light on the bioenergetics of ancient sulfur biochemistry. So none of this is a story yet, but it's intriguing clues. It's like a kind of treasure map where you keep seeing a different piece of the map, but it keeps having echoes about the same early chemistry. So that I think that's a promising and exciting area of current work. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. And just a final question. Do you think that if we keep following this path, that in the future we will still need to look at extraplanetary sources of specific chemicals to attend to the complete biochemistry we find on Earth? It's hard to say. My guess would be that we will not need to discover chemicals off the planet to know where life came from. <clears throat> Many biologists or chemists don't have a strong opinion that that would be correct. My reasons for having that opinion are my background in physics. Uh, much of the 20th century in physics turned on the discovery of phase transitions. <coughs> and where organization in the macroscopic world comes from. And there are certain mathematical patterns that come from that work, which say that the kinds of things that make robust structure in the big world, the world that doesn't have atomic fluctuations, 
come from processes that are very redundant and in which many, many, many variables act in the same way and support each other. And arguments for a very early life that depended on rare molecules from space or rare events on Earth do not fit into that mathematical <coughs> pattern of robustness. So to me as a physicist, they seem unnatural. But it's important to say that the physics of robustness still involves only quite simple systems. It only involves essentially the hierarchy of matter. It's an enormous accomplishment that we understand the hierarchy of matter. It's the most stunning thing in science in some ways. But it's like the Red Queen in Alice in Wonderland. She runs for a long time to stay in one place and Alice says, haven't we gotten anywhere? And the Red Queen says, you'll have to run much faster than we have to get anywhere. Everything that physics did in the 20th century to understand the structure of matter, we need to do again to understand the structure of processes. And I think then we will begin to have the right mathematics and physics to talk about living systems. <clears throat> and that's going to be very rich because the space of processes is much bigger than the space of materials. And chemistry is much bigger in its complexity than the parts of the, the vacuum that we've understood so far. So this is going to be a lot of work, and I'm sure it will include a great many new concepts that we didn't know exist in the universe before now. Mm -hmm. Okay, so great. Uh, Dr. Smith, I would really like to thank you for being here with us today. I really loved your book, and I think uh, me and my followers will learn a lot with this interview. Uh, and I mean, uh, the origin of life is certainly one of the biggest scientific mysteries that we still have and a great and it is a great scientific endeavor to follow. And I will certainly keep following the work that you've been doing and your colleagues as well, the colleagues you've refer referenced as well. So uh, and again, thank you for accepting the invitation and for being here with us today. What a pleasure, Ricardo. Yes, I hope this is useful and enjoyable to your listeners, and I wish you well. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Take care. Alrighty. Bye-bye. If you appreciate my work, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash the dissenter. Thank you.